You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And now let's go to Hebrews 10. Nineteen through twenty-five. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, we're so grateful that you are here with us this morning to gather as God's people to worship, to open up God's word to commune together in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are continuing this series that is, uh, it's very, very complicated there, belong. We're very creative uh, individuals here. Uh, But we try to keep things simple. And the series is belong. And what we're doing is we're discussing what it looks like to belong in a deeply divided and at times lowly generation. It's, as I mentioned last week, very easy to be surrounded by millions of people and yet feel very alone, very isolated. And so what we're doing is we're retelling the compelling vision of the ancient scriptures and how the Bible really describes belonging, particularly belonging to the local church. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, the book of Acts specifically gives us these details about this, this, this passionate, uh, devoted little community, well, actually sort of large community that God had formed following the days of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and following the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. And the details details that we read of here in Acts 2 give us this timeless clarity about what what belonging to the local church is to look like, even in our day as well. And so today we're going to be focusing on the importance of gathering together, gathering together, Uh, Look with me in Acts 2, verse 46. Listen to how the scriptures describe this early church. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. G.K. Chesterton uh, once wrote this. Because children have abounding vitality. Because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Okay, so my, my kids have sort of moved beyond this, but I remember these days when we, they, they would just want the same thing done over and over. Maybe it was just a silly face or a silly word to just do it again and just do it again and just do it again. They never grew tired of it. It was us that was like, all right, that, that's enough. I'll do it like 10 times, but there's a certain point where we sort of stall out. He goes on to say this, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. 
but has never got, uh, got tired of making them. Perhaps God, every single day, says, do it again, do it again, do it again, exalting in the monotony of the sun rising and the moon coming up at night and daisies being, uh, coming about and growing. And then he says this, it may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. What, he, what he's saying is, in a way, we have sinned and grown old, and yet God, the ancient of a days, is yet younger than we are. With that vitality every single day to say, do it again, do it again, do it again. See, sometimes some things are worth repeating and repeating often. As I mentioned, the sun rising in the east, I am so glad that that sun does that every single day without us asking it. Or coffee and tea in the morning. I woke up, ex amen. First amen for coffee today, thank you. Um, I woke up this morning really early and I was not bothered by the monotony of the smell of coffee. Or that I love you from someone that we know truly, truly cares. That, that never gets old. Sure, most things do get monotonous when they get repetitive. That happens. But the things that matter most to us are always worth repeating. Let me say that again. The things that matter most to us are always worth repeating. In fact, engaging them frequently isn't boring because it brings life and it brings joy into our life. They, they become those very things that we come back to with regularity because we can count on it, because we can count on its value, because we can count on what it will do to us and, and for us. What we read of here in Acts is the church gathered regularly in the temple grounds for corporate worship. Sort of something similar to what we're experiencing here today. Now, it looked very different, and it would have sounded very different, but in a sense, the church was gathered all in one place. We read on in the book of Acts, and it tells us that they gathered in Solomon's portico, which was a place where everyone could gather, men, women, uh, Jews, Gentiles, all to hear and worship Jesus Christ. And so they gathered in their large corporate worship gatherings, but they also gathered in their homes for more intimate, relational connections, for meals, and specifically for the Lord's Supper. And so there was this rhythm of large gatherings and these ryth this rhythm of small gatherings. It's as if the church, week by week, even day by day, said, let's do it again. Same time, same place. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Somehow, some way, this consistent repetitive, week by week, and if I'm reading this correctly, day by day habit of gathering for worship and gathering for fellowship and gathering for teaching and gathering for the Lord's Supper was in fact a life-giving gift to this church. It was life-giving. It, it, it brought joy to this community. It did something for this community, not only in a way that fostered personal growth for the life of these individuals, but in a way that gained this community favor with the greater community. Awe came upon everyone. They were gaining favor with the community at large, somehow, some way, by this life-giving gift of gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ. But then something happened. Over the course of years, as things began to settle down, the church began to catch its stride. Those like pioneer church plant years passed by. Perhaps they got themselves a building too. For some, that devotion that marked the church in Jerusalem began to fade. They, they stopped saying, let's do it again, let's do it again. Like Chesterton described, they sinned and they got old and they forfeited that spiritual youthful wonder and vitality. And this, this spirit-empowered habit that we read of in Acts of gathering together began to be replaced by a new habit that we read of in the book of Hebrews, verse 25. Staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do. So this habit that we read of in Acts is now replaced with a new habit that we read of here in the book of Hebrews. A church that was known for its consistency was now, years later, in danger of inconsistency. A culture shift was occurring within the church. 
And we today are in the midst of a, of a, a culture shift of our own as well. Statistics continue to show, and this is probably not a surprise to any of you, but statistics continue to point towards a decline in church gathering. And it's multifaceted. Overall, percentages of those who attend churches and religious gatherings is decreasing. It's on the decline. But also, the frequency of gathering is also on the decline. I was listening to a pastor in Australia who said that the national average for church attendance is down to now one for every six weeks. One for every six weeks. Now, this has affected us as a church as well. For us, uh, by our sort of best guesses, we as a church, as a whole, are typically here about two Sundays out of a month. Okay, about half of the time. Which means at any given moment, we are sort of functioning on Sunday mornings as half a church. Do you know that we would not fit in this building right now if we all showed up? Easter is typically the time where everyone shows up. And so those stats continue to show that less people are coming to church and less people, uh, people are coming less frequently to church. And so it's interesting, this pastor, this, this writer of Hebrews, who's believed to be writing to the church in Jerusalem, is he's going to acknowledge this issue. But I'm taking note about how this pastor, this, this writer, this, uh, this spirit-empowered writer is going to address the church in Jerusalem because his approach is very important. First, he's, he doesn't seem to be describing an act of willful rebellion and disdain towards the church. Something else seems to be going on here. Okay, sometimes people leave, and sometimes people leave angry, and sometimes people leave with disdain, and it makes for really awkward run-ins at Trader Joe's and Safeway and that sort of thing. Like, that happens. That is going to happen. But it shouldn't be the assumption when someone falls away from the gathering regularly. That should not be our automatic assumption. For the Hebrews, what was it? For this church, what was it? Well, for them, and often for us, it was simply a matter of neglect. That's what he says in verse 25, neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. So some had just simply lost sight of this value of this ordinary means of God's grace in our lives. And what happened was this pattern of neglect had led to the habit of absence. That that pattern of neglect had led to the habit of absence. Remember, habits are always being formed in our lives, whether they're intentional or not. It's very hard to form a good habit, isn't it? But it's very easy to form a bad habit. In fact, there's, it requires no intentionality at times at all. And so our patterns are always forming habits for us. And so what happened for this church was perhaps missing once became missing twice, which became weeks and weeks strung together, and then months, months became years, and then there's this, just this pattern where they're absent. They're gone. They've neglected the gathering. Secondly, as I'm reading this, it's interesting he doesn't seem to be spending a significant amount of time making people feel bad about falling out of the rhythm of gathering or trying to guilt people into showing up to church. Okay, that doesn't do anyone any good. Okay, you can only get so far guilting people into uh, coming to church because there's a certain point where guilt can only just get you so far that the gospel takes you even further. It's the difference between the law and the gospel. And he's not laying on the guilt to these people. In fact, it's interesting. He doesn't even address them at all, not directly. He's using these individuals as a more of like a cautionary tale to the church. He's not directly talking about these people who have fallen out. So what does he do? And what should I do? What do we do about this? This is the question I'm asking right now. I'm asking the word of God. I'm asking the spirit of God to illuminate what do we do about this. And here's what, here's what the, the writer of Hebrews does. He motivates those who are engaged, and he motivates those who are participating, and he motivates them with vision, and specifically with Christ-centered vision. And so that's what I intend to do with the remainder of our time. What I want to do is I want to cast some vision about why gathering matters, what is being accomplished as we gather, and how we as Christians should be responding. All right, you guys with me? That's where we're going. First, why? And the answer is this. Gathering together is a costly gift from God. 
Gathering together is a costly gift from God. I wonder how often when we gather as God's people on a Sunday morning, we are being reminded just what it cost for us to be here. What went into the process of us being able to like wipe the sleeps away from our eye, grab coffee, get dressed just enough in enough time to show up to church on a Sunday morning? Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, and whenever you see brothers in the New Testament, read brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Pause. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that we have boldness to enter into the sanctuary of God. For the believer, nothing is holding us back, whether it is guilt or shame or condemnation or fear of punishment, or it's other things like social anxiety or disappointments about others or frustrations or simply a busy schedule. For the believer, the confidence that we receive through Jesus' blood is better and greater and stronger than anything that would ever attempt to hold us back from fully engaging and experiencing the benefits of belonging. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word a better word over those guilts, a better word over those fears, a better word over those anxieties, a better word over those frustrations, a better word over those disappointments, the blood of Jesus Christ. So some simple math. Confidence is greater than obstacles. Remember that. The confidence we have in Jesus Christ will always be greater than the obstacles that we face. Always. Verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, the obstacles and the barriers to us belonging to God and belonging to one another have been removed. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they've been removed. And what that means is that the very presence of God which was previously veiled behind the veil of the tabernacle, behind the veil of the temple, off limits to everyone but one, has now been torn from the top down. And that presence, the presence of God, is made available to anyone and everyone that would come through faith in Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's where you say amen. We're going to coach you through that one. <laughs> I I just preached at victory and praise yesterday, so I'm like expecting it for everything this morning. <laughs> okay, so through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we come by faith, his presence available to anyone and everyone who would come by faith. He meets us. Amen. He draws us near. Thank you. We're, we're, we're going to get through this. There'll be some clunky, awkward years, but in like 10 years, it's going to be so great. He draws us near. He meets us. He welcomes us. The, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was in order to bring us to God, Christ being that way. Like God is with us. His presence meets us. Think about that. The creator, sustainer of the entire universe says, like, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. How? Well, look at me in verses 21 and 22. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how is this experienced? How do I, do, how do I experience that? How do you experience that? Because Jesus Christ is both our mediator and our minister. Christ is mediating for us and ministering to us. He, he welcomes us. He cleanses us now. And now he presides over our community. And he even presides over our gathering. Do you know that? Christ presides over this meeting right now. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm present. I am ruling. I am reigning. I am presiding over everything you are doing. I'm with you. Which reminds us that churches are always going to have flawed people. And churches are always going to have flawed leaders. But the church will always have her faithful high priest. The chief shepherd who presides over her, 
and watches out for her. We're going to be disappointed by people. We're going to be disappointed by leaders. We will never be disappointed by Jesus Christ. And he says, this is my church. And I'm with my people. And I'm present with her. So what makes gathering together worth it? I mean, we need to answer that. You're here today. So at some point this morning, you're like, I guess it's worth it. Thank you. But like, what makes it worth it in the long run? What makes it worth it like now? What makes it worth it for 2019? What makes it worth it for your family? What makes it worth it for your perseverance? What makes it worth it, your, your time commitment and, and keeping the Lord's day holy and set apart and making it a top priority, even though all those different things are pulling at our lives? What I can tell you is that the value of our gathering is not based on the style. And it's not based on the music. And it's not based on the preaching, or at least the style of it, or our preferences being met, or our overall experience. Those things should not be the reason that we determine that it is worth it. The value of our gathering is based on the costliness of the gift. The writer of Hebrews is doing something amazing here. He is attaching the gathering of God's people with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This right here, we are experiencing right now, obtains its value from the unshakable value of Jesus Christ. Your experience is going to be like this, but the value of Jesus Christ will remain. And so what he does is he tethers the value of the church. He tethers the value of our gathering. He, he tethers the value of us coming together, not to our experience, but to Christ, who is, who was, it is, and will always be. Which means, again, gathering together in Jesus' name will always be worth it. For the believer... We don't need to wake up. This, this doesn't need to be a question anymore. Is it worth it? Yes, <laughs> because Christ is worth it. See, here's the thing. Dedication is based on value. We dedicate our, ourselves and our time to things that we value. Whether you're a very value-driven individual, type A personality, your calendar is all set out, or you're just like a, like a, a, a tumbleweed in the wind, <laughs> you, are being fo- you are following what you value. You are dedicating your time to what you have determined is most valuable in your life. And so as long as believers attach their dedication to the unfading beauty of Jesus Christ, here's what I'm confident of. Consistency will not be an issue. As Christians are attaching their their dedication to the unfading beauty of Jesus Christ, consistency will not be an issue. Here's my deal. I am not going to appeal to you and just say, you need to show up because it's the right thing to do. I'm going to appeal to you and I'm going to say, attach your dedication, attach your devotion, attach your time, your energy, your resources, 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 resources on the mind, resources to the unfading glory of Jesus Christ who will never let you down. Perhaps some of us today need to stop viewing the church through the lens of consumerism and view it through the lens of the gospel. Not just like, am I going to get the experience that I desire to get, but through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the beautiful thing. When we look through the lens of the gospel, it is not rosy colored glasses. You'll still see the flaws. Look close enough. You've probably already seen them this morning. Those flaws don't disappear, and yet we're reminded of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us, that pure water that washes over us, and we begin to see one another in an entirely new light. Perhaps today you need to lift your eyes a little bit higher than what you see. Perhaps some of us, we are judging our experience based on what we see on the horizontal plane. Perhaps we need to lift our eyes and gaze upon he who presides over this gathering the one who promises to be among his people. Revelation 2 describes Jesus as him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus is walking among his church. Jesus is present with his people. This is the most important meeting that we could have. You guys still with me? All right, the second thing is this. Gathering together 
isn't just something that we do for God, but it's first something God does for us. Verses 21 and 22. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Who is that? Jesus. All right. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And I ask that question for a reason. Not because we have great pastors over the household of God, let us draw near. Because we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And so what's, what's a priest do? A priest ministers. A priest ministers to the people. And so what's the motivation for us to gather? To be ministered to. The motivation of our gathering is to be ministered to, and specifically to be ministered to by the great and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. And so as we draw near and we gather, what we're doing is we're drawing near to the initiating presence of Jesus Christ, our, our great priest who has been and will always be actively ministering to our souls. Do you know that? Jesus right now is ministering to your soul. Deep love, deep concern, deep sacrifice for the state and the health of your life, for your soul, for your future, for your eternity. He is present and ministering to you now. In fact, Abraham Kuyper describes uh, that through the liturgy of the church and the gathered church, it's not just that we're carrying out these actions towards God. I think some of us get tripped up on this. We show up to church, we go through the routines, we carry out some traditions, and then we leave. We think it's mostly about what we offer to God, that we're here to do things for God, to, to get him back, to pay him back. I'm showing up to church. I'm going through these rituals. I'm going through these traditions. I'm singing these songs because I owe God, and God needs to be paid back. That's not how it works. As we gather, God is acting for us. God is acting in our lives. Why? Because God's present, presence is not static. God's not just this figure in the corner with his arms crossed, just making sure nothing gets out of hand. He's active. He's present. And so how does God act in our lives? Well, when we gather to sing, the Psalms say that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. And so it's through our singing, God's rule and reign is experienced in a very unique way. As we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, we are hearing God speaking to us. God's voice is experienced in a very unique way. As we give of our finances, God is providing for the needs of the church through us. God's generosity, God's blessing, God's provision is being experienced in a unique way. As we serve one another, we are being conformed into the image of our servant Savior, Jesus Christ. God's sacrificial love is being experienced in a unique way. As we gather and we fellowship with one another, as we share words, as we pray for one another, as we embrace, as we shake hands, as we give a hug, as we smile, as we weep with one another, as we, as we rejoice with those who rejoice, what we're doing is we're extending and receiving the nearness of God. God's care is experienced in a unique way. The word tells us as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Christ meets us and ministers to us in a very tangible way. God's Renewing presence is experienced in a unique way. The point I'm trying to make is that the liturgy of our gathering isn't on one hand flippant. It's not just like, oh, what do we want to do this? Oh, let's just throw some things together. But on the other hand, it's not this rigid, lifeless thing we just do. The rhythms of our gathering are designed with two things in mind. The first is this, is to retell the story of the gospel every time we gather. We live in a world with rival liturgies, constantly trying to wrap us up into narratives and shape our hearts and shape our minds. And as we gather with the church on Sunday mornings, we are being restored once again in the beautiful narrative of the gospel. The story of God's generous, creative life that he had given at creation. 
The reminder that through our sin, humanity was subjected to futility and brokenness and hurt and pain and death. And yet God didn't leave us in that state and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to step down into our humanity. To, to live the life that we could never live. To die the atoning death that we deserve. To rise bodily and spiritually on the third day. To rise in victory over death and Satan and hell. To give us his life. To give us his spirit. To give us his promise that he is restoring all things and that there is renewal coming. Like that story, I need that story every single Sunday because I'm hearing another story out there. I'm hearing the American dream. I, I, I'm hearing that this will bring satisfaction. This is the dream life. This is the life that you, are, that you need to live. And here I need to be restoried in that gospel. And so we commit to you to restory every time we gather. The second thing we have in mind is that we are being shaped. The liturgy of our church is intended to form our souls. Somehow, some way, God takes what we experience here in, in our small gatherings and forms our lives in a way that we couldn't otherwise experience alone. In fact, look at, look at verse 24. It tells us that there's a, a particular expression of love and good works that is only the result of being stirred up. There is love and good works that God has created me for that I need you to stir me up towards and that you need me to stir you up towards and we need each other to stir one another up towards. See, not only are we being formed as we gather, but God in his grace is using us to form others. Do we think about that on Sunday morning? As we're looking at our schedules, are we thinking like, what, is this, what value is this going to bring me? Are we being reminded that God through his Holy Spirit is ministering to others through us? Like, what if I just didn't show up on a Sunday? That would be really weird. They'd be like, Christian is failing in his job. We need to bring it to the elder board. Like, he just didn't show up, didn't tell anyone. But that sense of seriousness, and then, and then we look at our own lives, and it's like, willy-nilly, it doesn't matter. What that, what that communicates is what, the way I minister is, the greater way, is greater than the way that you minister. That I am more important than you. That I have the spirit in greater proportion than you do. That my job matters, not yours. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And so God uses one another to, to form each other's lives, to bring about love and good works Gathering together is at the heart of Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. And so our consistency, the consistency that I'm talking about here, depends on us grasping what God is offering to do in us and through us. Amen? The last thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Gathering together needs to be prioritized in the life of Christians. Just said simply, it needs to be a priority in our lives. Look with me in verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as, the, as we see the day drawing near. So listen to these words. Okay, so it's, it's in written form. So we can't hear exactly how it was intended. But listen to the words. Listen to the, the intended tone here. Let us hold fast without wavering, not neglecting all the more. There's a sense of seriousness here. There's a sense of urgency. There's this, this call to increasing devotion. It's not only just don't neglect. It is increase your devotion. Strengthen your devotion. Friend, hold fast. Persevere. Hang in there. Keep going. Why? Because much is at stake. Much is at stake. In the years leading up to the World War II, the Nazi regime started moving throughout Germany, trying to, trying to gain alliances with the state Lutheran church. And if you know anything about history, sadly, many of those churches began to endorse the Nazi party. But a, a group of leaders formed this resistance, and they began to form these little seminaries to train and raise up leaders that were going to plant churches that would not come under the sway of the national power, to stand in direct opposition to what they deemed as evil and unjust. 
And so one of the leaders was a man who I've talked about often, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the leaders of this resistance. And he formed a small little seminary at Finkenwald called Finkenwald. And it was small, it was unassuming, it was, there was nothing spectacular about this little seminary. But what it was doing was forming and shaping these extraordinary countercultural leaders who would go out and plant churches and say, we are not bowing the knee to the Nazi, Nazi regime. We are not going to do it. And uh, what these leaders realized was that if the Nazi party at the time had the ability to sway such large portions of the culture and the, and the country, including the church, that it was going to mean that they needed to take serious the call to be continually formed as disciples of Jesus Christ. They, they understood that, that the subtle yet powerful ability of the prevailing culture to, to shape people. And so what they said, they said, we've got to increase our intentionality in discipleship. We've been told not to conform to the way of the world, but to be transformed. And we're going to take this serious right now. So they had what seemed like a very regimented practice of community. They had daily times of prayer, daily times of reading, daily times of fellowship. They were extremely disciplined, uh, an extremely disciplined group of people. They met regularly, prayed often, uh, read frequently. And out of this experience came a famous book called Life Together. Out of their experience at this little seminary called Finkenwald. And so one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's friends reads this book. And he gets a little bit concerned. And so he comes to visit uh, Bonhoeffer in this seminary. And observing this little community's commitment and, and their, their commitment to gather together, he, he pulls Dietrich Bonhoeffer aside and he says, like, I get what you're doing here. I get it. I get the vision. But, like, don't you think it's a little bit much? Like, you're, you're taking this, this, this thing, like, really serious. Don't you think you need to take it easy? And I get what this guy's coming, where this guy's coming from. I read Life Together, and there were moments in this book where I was like, man, this guy takes discipleship to like the next level. This guy is serious about his commitment to community. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer invites his friend. He says, come with me. Let's go on a little walk. And so they get in a little rowboat, and they row across a little waterway, and they get out, and they step out, and they climb this little hill, and there was this hill that divided two valleys, Finkenwald on one side. And he, he tells his friend, he says, look over here. And off in the distance, the other direction from the hill was a, a military base. And he points at this military base, and it was the early undercover stages of the Nazi party secretly building their military force. Up until this point, they were a political force, but not yet a military force. And it's the Nazi party building up, secretly building up that, that military force. And so Bonhoeffer looks his friend in the face and pointing back at his little seminary, and he says, this has to be stronger than this. This, pointing to Finkenwall, has to be stronger than this, pointing to the Nazi regime. And here's the point. What he was saying was our dedication here to be formed as disciples of Jesus Christ has to be stronger than their power to conform us. Has to be stronger than their power to cause us to come under their sway. People were coming under the sway of the slow, brewing uh, might and power of their generation. And what he was saying is this is not a time to lax. This is just not the time to lax. We are living in particular times and something is coming that demands that we increase our devotion. Something is coming that demands that we increase our dedication. This week... This week alone, bombs were sent to political figures in the mail. This week, uh, a man armed attempted to break into a, a predominantly black church with the intention of murdering, was unsuccessful, walks into a grocery store, and murders two random African-American men. Yesterday, someone targeted a, a Jewish synagogue and killed 11 by last count. Like, these are the things that you would generally read about over the, the span of a year. That would typically sort of be what happens throughout a year. This is now our weeks. This is the times that we live in. These are our weeks. And the point is this. Our dedication to be formed as disciples and our dedication to make disciples has got to be greater than the ability of the world to shape and form men and women. It just has to be. 
We believe in something greater here. We believe in something greater in the kingdom of God than the power of the world to shape people towards evil. This has to be stronger than that. And what the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying is let us gather and stir one another up all the more. Why? In light of the day drawing near. What's that day he's talking about? Well, the day he's referring to is the day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. When Christ returns to right every wrong, when Christ returns to restore his creation, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's hitching our gathering to end time urgency. The writer of Hebrews just spread apocalyptic flavor over everything that we do. He just hitched what we are doing right now to the significance of Christ's return, which means somehow, some way, this gathering has end time significance. Somehow, some way, this matters. It matters to God. It matters in Christ's plan to return. It matters in history. It matters in our now. It matters in our future. It matters in our sense of belonging. And friend, it should matter in your life too. It needs to matter. It's got to matter. Abraham Kuyper put it this way. And this is what I want to invite uh, you into. The greatest gift a church can receive is to have a group of families who take their responsibilities with such Christian seriousness that they're willing to completely alter their lifestyle to raise up disciples for Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we're calling you to. We're not calling you to, to give God like your leftovers. We're not calling, God, or calling you to, to give God like portions and margins of your life. We are calling you to dedicate your everything for the sake of making disciples. That's what we're here for. And if, if you are at this moment like weighing whether or not to become a member of this church, this is what you need to understand. This is what we're going to be calling you to, to completely alter your life for the sake of making disciples. Because I'm confident that this is stronger than this. And in our midst, this has to be stronger than the power of the world to form and shape. Amen? So what I want to do is I want to call up a family who has dedicated themselves to altering their lives for the, and taking this sort of Christian seriousness uh, to gathering with the church. So I'd like to welcome up the Sloans, Mike and Liz Sloan. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves and a little bit about your experience gathering with the church? Uh, I'll start. Hi. <laughs> We're a little nervous, like everybody is, I'm sure. Coming up here, you guys are really close. <laughs> um, okay. My name's Liz, and um, we uh, drive up here from Turlock. Um, and so every week, and uh, a little bit about myself, we've been married for 15 years, we have four amazing kids, um, and uh, we fill up our days just raising them, and um, I homeschool the kids uh, during the week, that's a full-time full -time job for me, um, and uh, which is where we're at right now. So anyways, a little bit about my experience with the church. Growing up, church was non-negotiable. You, you go unless you're dying, and you wear a dress. <laughs> um, I used to beg to wear pants. I don't know why. I was just rebellious, I guess. Um, but church was important. We went every week, and it was a place where our family um, served, and we did Bible studies, and we did, uh, it was a big part of the youth group. And so growing up already, it was pretty clear that church was important, but I only went because I had to. And so then you have to come to the time where you have to decide what you're going to do on your own. Nobody's checking in on you and um, had, had to form over the years what I think about church and um, looking for a healthy church, looking for a church to be a part of, to um, get the things um, out of it and to it that are supposed to be there. And that's kind of how we ended up here. So um, just real quickly, we ended up coming up to reality after my mom passed away a couple years ago. And 
<laughs> um, there was a sermon series on suffering, which was timely. Um, and I think we were both, Mike's mom has also passed away, and I think we were both really hungry for uh, what does the church say about suffering? We're all going through things at different times in our lives. And so it was just a timely uh, series to come up here for. And we just uh, loved what was being said and what was being done. And honestly, it was four years ago, four and a half years ago. We haven't, we haven't looked back. We've been here every week since then. Well, first of all, I want to say this is a sacrifice for me getting up here speaking in front of you guys. <laughs> so I do not like speaking in front of uh, crowds of people. So <clears throat> um, my name is Michael Sloan. Um, I was born, I was actually born and raised in Stockton, California, on the south side, actually. <laughs> um, but in 1990, I went off to Turlock, California to attend Stanislaus State. And unfortunately, back then, um, the culture in Stockton was so negative, um, people were congratulating me that I made it out and basically told me to never to come back. Mm. Um, it was even uh, friends of mine, close friends of mine, were even actually sad to see me leave, like I was going someplace and escaping um, to someplace that they were not able to get out of. Um, I am a uh, special education teacher 15 years ago. God blessed me um, to become a special education teacher uh, for students with severe disabilities. Um, I love that and I enjoy that. Um, as far as my experience for church is totally different than Liz's uh, was. Um, I, the few times I did go to church, my grandmother dropped me off. I was actually born by a single mother. Uh, by a single mom, and my grandma helped raise me. Um, my grandma felt like she had been betrayed by the church, so instead of her attending, she thought it would be a good idea just to drop us off, when me and my uncle, when we were younger. It was an all-African-American church on the south side of Stockton. A few things I do remember is, you know, these older ladies that could not walk into church, you know, getting the Holy Spirit, dancing up and down the aisles, um, couldn't understand the sermon because the preacher just shouted the sermon <laughs> the, 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 whole, the whole time. Um, the last thing, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, um, we was there one Sunday, and the pastor asked, um, you know, could all the children gather up so we could put holy oil on their foreheads? I was not having any part of that. <laughs> I actually ran out of the church and ran home and told my grandmother I wasn't going to church again. And then she was actually okay with that. So. so as a family, you've devoted yourselves to being with God's people. And so as you drive here with your children on Sundays, I have to imagine at least once, uh, the question has come up, like, why do we go to church? And what's the point? And so what, what do you tell them? And how would you explain the dedication that you made to this next coming generation? Well, even before we started going to church out of town, you know, they've asked why we have to, why we have to go and... Um, getting up, getting ready, looking nice, you know, whatever it might be, whatever parts they get from it. Um, but we do want the kids to know that the expectation is, is that there isn't really any better place to be on Sunday except for at church. And with all the things that are pulling at us, and it is a time that we want as a family to be reoriented. And the kids don't need to, they don't understand, I don't think, all the ins and outs of um, the parts that behind the scenes that, that we know and have decided for them. But it's, it's expected, and uh, we've told them that um, this is the best place to nourish us and to remind us and to gather with other believers, um, and it does feel like it's a million miles away some Sundays, and some Sundays we're definitely tempted not to come, and the kids really are bummed out when we don't come um, for whatever reason, whether somebody's sick or not, and so it's good to know that they've gathered at least some along the way, that um, it's important to be here. So. I've always shared with the kids that it was uh, God's clear vision for our family to be at reality at this time. And Christ is so, has sacrificed so much for us that us driving up here 45 minutes once a week is not a big deal at all. 
I know deep down inside, if I had to commute to work Monday through Friday to financially support my family, I would. So it's even more important for me if I, if I have to commute once a week to take care of the spiritual health of my family. I'm all in and I'm okay That's with good. that. All right, so you guys have um, had some obstacles to overcome, obviously distance being one of the one that comes to mind, but how would you encourage someone who feels challenged to gather or um, has to make significant sacrifices to be here? How would you encourage that individual? Yeah, um, I think it, we understand that it's hard to get to church, and I don't know if distance is necessarily the biggest obstacle. I think the biggest obstacle is probably um, people wanting to stay away from having to face God. And having to face the fact that um, we feel like we don't understand our place. We don't know what Christ has done. And so um, it's, um, I think we would encourage people that no matter whether you're five minutes away or 45 minutes away or across the street, that really the biggest obstacle is just knowing and understanding that you are, um, have been paid for and that you are loved and that you um, need uh, um, the nourishment and the reminder that this church particularly, and other churches offer. So um, and I kind of speak in stories because to help my kids understand things, but we were reading Pilgrim's Progress this week, and um, after Christian had sent me the questions, and the part where Christian has left the city of destruction, and he's on his way to the city of, of the king, and um, Mr. Worldly stops him and says, you know, why are you going all that way? Why would you even risk any danger? Why would you risk any peril? Your relief can be found right here. Just go find a different spot. Um, it's actually called the Village of Morality. And he said, just stay here. You don't have to experience a dangerous journey. You don't have to go to the king to get relief. You can get relief right here. And encourages him just to stay and to not go. And um, Christian does, and he ends up just getting lost. So um, we just think it's just, a, I was instantly struck by the reminder of all the things that would pull at us to not go to be with the king and to not take the journey, well, like I said, whether it's five minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it might be, but all the things that are trying to keep us from being here um, and to be reminded of how important it is to be here. Uh, my advice and encouragement um, to somebody to gather for church on Sundays is not to see it as a sacrifice, but see it as a blessing that this is a preview that God has for us because when Christ comes back, and takes all his children back to heaven. We will be worshiping him and praising him forever.